Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at day two of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. This is our first recording of the day, and uh, it is noted that the uh, the crowd is slowly trickling in, not storming the gates like they were yesterday, maybe an indication of all the uh, events that happened uh, last night. I can note that you kind of get a sense of how long Adam and I have been doing this. This is, I don't know, whatever year at the Real Estate Forum. We're certainly more bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this Thursday morning than others in the past. I think that's just an indication of our age and, and tenure. We are, of course, here today doing our speaker video series. We want to thank our sponsors for that, Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, and uh, Turner and Townsend. Kicking off day two, we have Ugo Bazari, CEO, Hazelview Investments. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. We're going to set the stage. I mean, a lot of everybody's got visibility on Hazelview. If you're in this industry, they, they know the name, they know you. But if we can do the the intro to how you got into real estate, how you got to where you are today, just to maybe fill in the gaps for some of the people that don't have the whole story. Well, I graduated from Ivy and I, I got into real estate because uh, I got a job at Ontario Teachers Pension Fund and they put me in the real estate department. And from there, I really enjoyed it and stayed in real estate. But uh, like they decided for you, you'd be a real estate uh, person? <laughs> yeah, okay. basically. And then I liked it. So I stayed into it. I just really liked investments as coming out of school from Ivy. And real estate was a, a niche that I really liked. And back in 2000, we started a company that we felt there was an opportunity in multifamily apartments. It's fragmented. It was an easy uh, market to get into and it was not being serviced by institutional capital. And so we launched a company to value add multifamily and launched a property management business and, and grew it over time. So now it's, so we're fast forward in 2023. Ease of you is, you know, we do direct real estate, both development, value add, different asset classes, multifamily, industrial. We dabble a little bit in office and retail, but uh, we do a lot of development and we have a huge multifamily development pipeline of almost 20,000 units uh, at different stages. And we do private lending and we do public security. So buy and sell stocks on the public markets uh, on a worldwide basis. So it's grown over time. And that's uh, the quick, uh, that's that's quick, quick, quick version. When, when did apartments turn to be institutional? I mean, yeah. I, I would, I would suggest you are an institution, you know, investing yeah. in real estate in apartments. But go back to 20, 2000 and talk about the environment then. Well, I like, think in 2000, uh, apartments were for a long time under rent control. So people, institutions didn't see that and rent control got lifted and now uh, D. Not complete rent control, but uh, the vacancy deed control. And uh, there was an opportunity to go out and renovate apartments. You know, there was basically a 40 year gap of not building a new apartment building. And there was, most institutions were focused on regional centers and retail and office and apartments were put on the side. So mostly families uh, owned apartment buildings and there was an opportunity to aggregate apartment blocks and slowly build and other people saw that opportunity uh, as we did and the average deal size also was very small back then so you know my a teachers my average deal size was 75 million of equity i couldn't bring anything before that so a 75 million dollar apartment deal back in 2000 was probably a massive deal so there was an opportunity it's still about 85 percent fragmented in non-institutional hands today and that was the opportunity. To Just for fun, what was the uh, sort of general cap rates and value per suite? Back then, uh, per suite were probably sixty to 70,000. Average cap was probably eight, eight and a quarter. The good old days. Yeah, eh? But yeah, but your <laughs> interest rates were seven and a half and a quarter. So, so yeah. it's a little bit different. Were you using CMAC back then too? Yeah, we did. But Not much. 
No, no, we were using CMC for sure. It was just a different rate. Like bonds were a lot higher, spreads were probably the same, but your average, you know, a 10 year loan would be seven and a half percent back then. And your average cap would be eight and a half, eight and a quarter. So it'd be different, right? So let's hold on to that 75 cent spread and talk about what it looks like today. Hasn't changed much. They've both yeah. gone down. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Trends. What would prompt sales back then? You're trying to build your book. What would be the opportunities? How'd they come up? I think it's the same opportunities that there exist today. It's really a lot of estate planning, people that have owned the assets for a long time and, and families that uh, want to get off their positions. Kids don't want to take care yeah, of the toys. Kids don't want, like, the kids are doctors and lawyers and accountants, and they really want, don't want to deal with the the buildings that their parents or grandparents built and all of those legacy. And it's eventually transitioned. And uh, so it was an opportunity to do that. And so that opportunity still exists today. It's like even today, you know, most of the trades that are happening are happening because, you know, a little bit more institutional trades sometimes, but it's more because of estate planning and and frankly, divorce too. So yeah. <laughs> those, are the, those are the things. What's the um, what's the book like right now? Yeah, our size is about 26,000 units. Across uh, Canada? Across Canada. You know, I think fundamentally in multifamily is probably the best has been in 23 years. You know, our vacancy is one and a half percent. NOI cash flows are very, very strong. Frankly, it's more of a question of, you know, we need more apartments. We need more supply. And affordability, there is an affordability issue. Yeah, we'll get that. Um, but fundamentally, multifamily sector right now is probably the best it's been in 25 yeah, years. Durability and stability of cash flow, if that's what you're looking for, you can't beat this. Right? Can't beat it, right? So, I mean, it's, it's almost gotten to the point. I mean, we're apartment lenders, so we totally have this conversation all day, every day. It's almost gotten to the point where it, it's gotten bad because it's, it's almost difficult to talk about. Yeah, rent appreciation is 20% per year. And people look at you and go like, that's, that's amazing for you if you're... I think benefiting from it as the owner. Yeah. yeah. But you know, the reality is that's not great for society as a whole. No, I think as a good landlord or a good property owner, you have to be disciplined not to increase rents too much. Yeah. You have an obligation to the yeah. general good of Canadians. Yeah, I, well, I, I believe that. So I'll, I'll do a plug for the institutional uh, owners because they think about headline risk, whereas one-offs maybe don't always because yeah, most of the headlines, yeah, I would say institutional owners are really good owners. They think about headline lists and they look at the greater good. Sometimes you see in the newspapers is it's where the individual one-off owner mm -hmm. that affects the market. And uh, that's the headline risk, right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for using the word owner. I've said this many times on the podcast before, but we just get rid of the word landlord. Yeah, I know. That'll change a lot of just the context. I have noticed that. That's why it's property. Yeah, and, property. and the, con the connotation is just negative, right? It, you're the lord of the land. And so, of course, you're bad, right? So, of course, you're bad. <laughs> right? So, it's a, it's housing a partner, housing partner, yeah. you know, something like that would the, make more sense. But I think that housing partner is a better word. And the housing partner with, I think there has to be collaboration between government, cities in order to fix the supply. The supply issue is not going to be done in two years, right? It's a 20-year fix. So you can't fix a 40-year problem. You mean we're not going to build 3.5 million by 2030? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be tough. We're going to try. I think it's the effort. We're, we're, well, we're we, going to do everything we, we probably can. Need, we probably need 60 to 70,000 units a year today. And our, I think that our peak construction was 30, 35,000. I think the number is more like, like 150,000 a year, which is... Well, I'm just, I'm just talking about apartments. No, but, no, yeah, fair. No, no, fair. Uh, are you building? Yeah, we are building. We are in the ground on a few projects. We have four live projects that so we're in the ground from Halifax to Toronto to out west. Great. Yeah, we're very active in building. Are you going to break uh, ground on anything in 2024? Are you going to keep the pipeline going? or We're going to try to break ground on 2024, keep on a couple more sites. But it's not a, an easy, it's not easy math. 
Yeah. Right. That, that's why I rents uh, are tough. It's not easy math. So like, I think you need some more, you know, the GST and HC will help, but it's not the silver bullet. We need more trades. We need more stability in pricing on construction costs in order to really spur development. And we need the government to be more involved. If you're sitting there today, so you've got the, the math in front of you, these numbers, and rates are down 60 basis points in the last, I don't know, four or five weeks. That's, this yeah, is the question, yeah. right? So it's November 30th, just to, 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 to timestamp it. You're not coming to term. You're not taking advantage of rates for another two and a half years. So what impact? Do you just kind of ignore where rates are today? Like, how do you, because yeah, that, that, that terminal rate or that exit rate is material. Are you talking about right? your exit cap rate? Yeah, because that that may, that matters on what your yeah. oh, your exit cap rate. It matters on what your exit loan amount is going to be. So how much capital you got to put on the development? Like it yeah. has material impact, but it does. But you it, own forever. It, there's it, no it exit. Does. You don't take a, you don't take advantage of it for two years. So it well, really is not material. You know, it's a it's a it's a weird quagmire. Look, if you're in in the midst of like building and trading, it has a material impact for sure. But I think if our philosophy is that we're building core cash flow. So we're looking at what we're building for our development yield, what we think we can long-term finance at, and what our cash yields are over the next 10 to 15 years are. So we're more focused on that return versus an RR return because no one knows what the exit cap rate is, right? No one knows where bonds will be, but I think we are, we're pretty good comfort what we can develop at and what our cash flow is. We, if you pick the right location, the building will probably be full and there's a lot of demand and you put long-term financing at a fixed rate, it's a good, steady cash flow generation for investors. That's where sort of more focused on than the exit cap rate. If you were to, to rank the the headwinds for development right now, where would finance risk fall in the you know the top three category? Probably at the three. Okay, so I noticed you didn't really mention it the first time around. I was like, that's amazing because people seem to be giving us a lot of grief about this. So it's uh... <laughs> no, like, look, I think financing is always part of it. You want good financing, but I don't think whether you do it, whether you're in the ground on something is because of financing. I think your people are worried about where rents are going to go, what kind of rents you need in order to make the development work and the affordability of those rents. And the other one is big trades, construction costs, right? So you're more risk that in two or three years, construction costs will go up substantially versus rates going up, right? Yeah. So it's a little bit different. Like, so now if we were in 2021, it would be a different story, right? Because I put financing risk probably at the higher because you're at the low point. You probably over the, the life of that development, rates are going to go up. Now you're probably at the high point and through the life of that moment, rates will probably go, maybe go down, right? So I don't think it's as risky as it was. How much time do you spend worrying about regulation risk? Fair bit. Yeah, like regulation is an issue. Rent controls are, you put rent controls, it will really kill supply. But I think this is the first time in a long time where governments from the federals, provincial cities are not talking much about rent controls anymore. They all recognize in order to fix this affordability crisis is supply and that there has to be cooperation between all levels of government. And talking about supply is sort of put that back burner rent controls on. And uh, I think even the liberals and the feds and everyone recognize that supply is the solution and how, how do we get more supply? So now it might come back in a few years, but today that political risk on rent controls is a little bit less, I, I, we feel. Yeah. I mean, the challenge is, of course, politics is an endless, endless cycle, you know, and the, the supply will come, it will control rents or will have an impact on rents. It just might take a decade, right? It, that's the challenge. It's really hard to fix 40 years of no build in a five-year cycle. 
And in the last three years have been extraordinary, right? Like we've had a pandemic and we've had the highest rate increase in rates and things have changed, right? And we're letting in a lot of immigration. We're all for immigration, but we need solutions to make sure those new immigrants are coming into Canada that have places to live. And it's just not just immigrate like housing, but it's infrastructure, it's hospitals, it's everything. So it's uh, something that we, we shall as Canadians be thinking about. So I want to ask you about, uh, you know, the current turmoil relative to your entire career, because Aaron and I joke about the silver lining of the last couple of years is given us lots to talk about in the podcast, because when we launched in 2016, 17, 18, things weren't changing that quickly. So you kind of run out of topics, but that has not been an issue. Ooh, cap rates are down a quarter basis point on retail. Let's talk about that for three weeks. So there's always, there's always a new risk, a new concern, a problem arises, problem gets solved. So over the, the time that you've been at this, is this the most turbulent period or is this just the recency effect of, of uh, the way we experience it? I would say that this is a turbulent period, but it's not what, uh, you know, I started my career in 1990s. Okay. If you want to talk yeah. about real estate being in trouble, 1990s were not great markets. If you had to rank the survive to 95 versus survive to 25, obviously that was a lot more survival mode. Yeah. So like, I, it's sort of funny, you know, you, if you talk to sort of, I hate to say this, but an older generation and I put myself in that older generation now. Yeah, today is, you know, there is turmoil in the market, but it's nothing compared to 1990. If you talk to the younger generation, they, you know, this is big turmoil compared to what they've that experienced. Just, because the, it's just, there was, yeah, that, was, seen, that was liquidity prices. This is, there's still so much capital floating around. No, I think in 19, well, look, in 1990, it was a real estate crisis. Cash flows were going down. You were doing net zero rents, right? And you didn't have capital. You had a lot more leverage on your assets. And it wasn't an institutionally owned market. It was a private lender market, you know, where Bramley would have been 90% levered, right? So rate hikes of this would have cratered the whole market back in 1990. Today, it's mostly institutional. Real estate's still doing like the fundamentals in real estate cash flow, especially in certain asset classes. And let's take office out of the question, but retail, industrial, multifamily, they're still doing very, very well. This is more of a liquidity and more of a pause because of what's going on in the rest of the world versus necessarily a real estate crisis. Fundamentals are, as you guys see all the time, are not bad, but liquidity is an issue today. Yeah, I think the big challenge is we've had whatever it is, 18 years of just you know rainbows and unicorns and all of a sudden there's some challenges. Cap rates don't just go down in perpetuity. And I think that is the, yeah. the shock value that we were experiencing. Yeah, cap rates don't go down. Nothing always goes down and then, you know, there's a reset a little bit, and but also this too will pass, right? So things go up and down, like it's, it's any cycle market, right? Like, you know, we had one in 2009, but that lasted six months. So yeah, more this like is a pause. Yeah. Than a, than and this is lasting a little bit longer, but this will come around too. Like even as you listen to Dave Rosemark, you know, rates are probably going to come down again. So the question is, I, we feel that, you know, 2024 is one of those vintage years for buying. And it's an ability that will reflect in 10 years going, why didn't you buy more in 2024? And I like they, that. Buy more in 24. There you yeah. go. It's yeah, a good, it's a good line. It's, it's, uh, we're an industry you, of slogans. You should, you <laughs> should. That's the line you should use. But, uh, capital is, is tough. If you're, so you're, you're growing, talked about buying to grow your portfolio. How much of that is development, build new units versus acquiring units? It's probably 50, 50 right now. Development is, but nothing is easy. Like buying is, is tough. You know, as you guys know, CMHC is, takes a little longer these days. Coming back. We can talk about that yeah. after. Yeah. But you know, buying is tough and, and development is tough. It's, it takes, uh, 
well-disciplined and there's no unlimited capital. So on the buying side, you have to be very, very selective of what we're buying and making sure that we're doing it. And I think people are worried about the stability of the market, stability of the bonds in order to start buying more. When did you last do your, um, or when did you do your last capital raise? We're always raising capital. Oh, okay. um, we're always looking for it. We raised a bunch of capital this year. Uh, How's that going? Yeah, We've been hearing that that market's real, it, real tough Scott, right now. Scott McPherson on uh, yesterday talked about that quite extensively. That, I uh, bet he said challenges <laughs> in, in the market. <laughs> Look, it's not easy. It's tougher today, but it's not impossible. Like the numbers went <laughs> low in the current equity raise environment. Well, look, it's, I don't know if what pencil out means on raising capital. If you have to, it's really crucial to have the right long-term capital partner and the right long-term investor with, with you, right? So you can't have an investor that goes in and out. People, generally speaking, redeem at the wrong times. This will be a time that you probably shouldn't be redeeming. But at the same time, you should probably be raising more capital to buy more right now. But there's an opportunity in crisis where you can create some great value or great buying opportunities. But, you know, as Scott said, and I, I believe from capital raising is tough. When you're out looking to buy more in 24, could you describe the asset that they would get your attention the most? Well, look, the two asset classes that we like, our long-term themes are on multifamily and industrial. We like those themes because there's a supply and demand imbalance for the long-term, not just uh, the short-term. And look, look, no one can predict what the market's going to do. And so we're, we try to pick asset classes that we like for a long, long time and then find the right asset and the right node uh, that we like. Like one of the biggest things for us is we're, because we're vertically integrated in property management, we have a lot of data and that data allows us to analyze which nodes are doing better than others. And uh, we're very, very active on that. So the themes are multifamily and industrial. Would Offices. You, would you dabble into the other ones if the, the right uh, deal came along? And office law specifically, because of course that's the uh, Look, I think retail, retail is, we dabbled before in retail and we still have some retail assets, but grocer anchored retail. And office is... That's tough to find, we've heard. It's, it's heard. very, very tough right the, now. The good retail. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very, very... And then office, if it was a 13 cap, does that just go, oh, that makes sense? Like, So the problem on office is not necessarily the cap rate. Like 13 cap is like, sure, that piques our interest, right? It's really that cash flow. Like it's, there's going to be a bifurcation of office from sort of BC class office into more A class office. And that, Office is not all the same, right? There's assets are say 100% vacant and there's a, assets are 100% full, right? So there's a huge, huge bifurcation of, of quality of office. Like BC place, you can't get a space. CIBC square is full, right? So, but there's other offices that are tough. So you really need to understand that cash flow because even if you say a 13 cap, is that 13 cap going to two? Yeah, well, exactly. In, in, what is, what are, we had this conversation yesterday. What are, what are net effective rents in 2029 on office, right? Like, what does that look like? And with yeah. building, right? Yeah. So a BC place net effective rents is different than, yeah. uh, you know, C-class suburb. suburb office building. I'm not sure a 13 cap would be very attractive for that. For most of the tenants roll in the next three years. And yeah. uh, but yeah. if, you know, BC place came out of 13 cap, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there'd be a lineup of people <laughs> wanting to buy that, right? Yeah. So um, pivoting back to office before we finish here, 
is there a lot of value add opportunity out there still? We've, we've talked about the institutionalization or the attractiveness of our apartments to institutions. There's a resistance, of course, from CMHC to finance a lot of uh, the, the repositioning assets. Does that change your perspective? Like, do you look for more of the newer assets that are more stabilized? Are you still kind of looking for the, the emerald in the rough, so to speak? I, I think we're looking at both. Like uh, the newer assets um, we are looking at, we did buy some new assets uh, in 2022. 23, we're more building your assets. And when we say value add or older assets, it's not just about necessarily repositioning them. It's about just uh, improving that asset for the long term. Yeah. We're trying to pick assets that we like in good locations and make a better product, make it a better product for tenants and customers. Well, what you've done at West Lodge, maybe just point one out, like that's an awesome project that you've done, right? Yeah, West Lodge is, you know, we turned it around. What, what's tenants. the background on that one? I'm not familiar. We bought, it was a, an asset in Parkdale. Okay. That Huge is, asset, a thousand units. Like it's a massive. Seven, yeah, 750 yeah. units. It, it's a great asset. Our tenants are great there. A very poorly yeah. run, right? No offense to the previous owners, but just yeah. wasn't wasn't the best. Wasn't the best, asset. but yeah. it took a lot, of, a lot of work, a lot of building trust with the community that we're, you know, we were good property owners, that we had the best interest to make it a community. And uh, I think we proved that we are there for the long term and we, and tenants and, and our customers really more than tenants have really take a shine and, and like what we've done in that property. Yeah, the so, communities have kind of embraced you guys now. We feel so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of hard work, but yeah. And then I think the team has done a great job of doing that, but it's a lot of work. Those are the stories that, I mean, you got to get away from this landlord concept, right? That your, your partners, your community builders, your owners, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a totally different vibe than the Lord of the yeah. land. Right? I think, and I think that's the big thing. Like we are community builders. We want to be in the community. We want to serve and. Our tenants are our customers. And if you provide a good product and a good long-term, there will be good things. And you know, housing is tough, but it is trying to build that community for the long-term. We've heard from a few of our guests today that there is a bit of an aversion to buying core assets right now. Agree or disagree with that uh, thesis for 2024? That value adds more the way that everybody's. And let me just the context. I think is just that pricing on those core assets is really difficult. So versus finance available. Yeah. yeah. What's the definition of a core asset? Maximized rents would likely be like, like just like a brand new apartment, capital. brand new apartment, yeah. great location, yeah. center center ice. You yeah. know, it's so, it's it's maxed out five dollar rents. Yeah. You know, it's fully yeah. occupied. I would agree with that statement then, because if you're buying something that's all the rents are market, your cap rate that you want. There's a huge bid aspect because everything's at market. So the only thing that you're sort of looking at is how much is the market going to grow versus buying more of a, an older building. You're waiting for tenants to, to move out gradually over time, but you're not really need the market to grow. You just need to be at market. And so, yeah, it's it, the pricing on a, on a brand new building, the cap rate that a buyer like ourselves will be a lot higher than more of an older asset and a vendor is not going to want to take our price. Yeah. And yeah, so that exactly. there's a huge, huge bid-ask price right now. I'm, I'm kind of amazed at how long that bid-ask gap has lasted because interest rates went up 18 months ago and is still just persistent, persistent. I would say that most multifamily owners have little debt and more long-term fixed debt. And so CMC has been able to stabilize that market because they've been a great partner in providing that long-term financing. Rate increases have never necessarily affected the majority of multifamily owners. No, some have. Depends on your maturity risk or your maturity role. Yeah. Well, your, your, your maturity even, profile. Looks but like. even the maturity role, right? If you have a CMHC loan coming in due at the wrong time, you're not taking principal risk. You're taking interest rate risk. You will roll over that debt because yeah. it's CMHC insured. 
It's not like in the States where you have a worry about paying down that debt or office. How much debt are you going to be paying down, right? Yeah. You're just worried about, okay, now you're 1.8%. Now you're 4%. Yeah. And, and, you, and just increase your AM. Yeah. Too, right? But that's it's a little bit different risk. Yeah. Last question. I'm going to let you go, Ugo. I just, you know, affordability is getting all the headlines and all the attention, but you know, given your scope and size, I'm just curious what your ESG approach is. What do you do? Look at your portfolio. How important is just ensuring your kind of future-proofing your business to to the impacts of climate change. Yeah. ESG is probably table stakes right now for us. We look at our portfolio very much on the ESG lens. And I, I think on when we talk about ESG, like we're really focused on the on the S, on the social too, on the affordability, but also on the environment. So it's just not just the uh, the E. A lot of times when people talk about ESG, they think about the, just the environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in if you're I sort of understand that in more different asset classes, but in multifamily, you need to be very, very focused on the on the S and on the social and the community service and what you're providing your tenants and your customers there. We are looking to make sure our buildings, we try to get to that net zero footprint by 2030, right? So, but that's going to be a tough, tough task. A lot of work. It's a lot of work and we're not going to be able to do it by ourselves. We need the government to really step up because even if you wanted to put all electric boilers and all electric cars in your buildings and really have everything that's electric and we have a good electric grid here, hydro, very efficient, the infrastructure won't hold it. So that needs to change too. It's like hydro won't be able to support all the electric boilers that you need to put in. So there has to be solutions and Everyone has to work together to make that, but it, it's table stakes. It's everything. It's on your mind. Table stakes um, <laughs> at an institutional level, but we could argue that it's not table stakes for the part of the market, small privates. How no, long till, how long till that part of the market catches up? When does it become like a, a probably government incentive? Yeah, I, mean, you back can't to ignore it uh, I think it catches up when a private guy is selling their building and a guy like and you're not there to buy it. Yeah. You know, a guy like ourselves says, yeah, I think it's worth X but I'm taking Y off because of ESG. And he's going to go, what? Yep. And it's going to affect pricing over the long term. It's not affecting pricing today, but I don't know what the impact on pricing is. Like, don't. Yeah, you can't get there yet. But it will have an impact where institutional buyers like ourselves and our institutions will say, look, we're not buying this building because it doesn't fit within my ESG strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And also we need, to, we would need to price it to make it in the ESG strategy. So, you know, we have a whole department now focused on ESG. It's everything that we, you know, it's very, very focused on what we're doing. So if, you know, private buyers that don't, you know, private individual owners that don't want to think about it will be affected over the long term. It's not, not now, but over the long term. Instead of uh, deferred CapEx, it's deferred ESG that has to be built into the pricing. Deferred CapEx and deferred ESG are almost the same, right? Yep. Like, what what are you doing? Like, what are your boilers? What are your windows? What are your insulation? Yeah, I'm what? buying this thing, but now I got to spend, you know, two million bucks to fix it up to the quality that I require for my portfolio. Yeah, but like, for example, you like, you need roof. Okay, before it was 100,000, now I need 300,000 because I need to put an environmentally friendly green roof, right? So that's going to be affected. Before you're only factoring 100, now you're going to factor 300. So it will affect pricing for sure. Ugo, we're out of time. Thanks very much. That flew by. Love talking about apartments. We could do that all day long. Well, actually, I do do that all day long. Um, thanks to uh, First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio, and Turner and Townsend for sponsoring the speaker video series here on day two at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. And of course, thanks to Ugo for, uh, for taking the time. Thank you for having me.
Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show. If you made it this far, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please and thank you. Conversation with Ugo Bizzari. Yeah, he's such a genuine individual. He's one of the guys that uh, we you know wanted to have on for a while. We're apartment lenders, of course. All the big the big names in the apartment world hold a particular attraction for us, especially the combination with coming across as pretty transparent. Uh, we Aaron and I always say that our favorite guests are the ones that just are happy to be themselves, be honest, be forward, share tactical advice, share their thoughts of the markets, share contradictory opinions of the market. And you know, he's all those things rolled into one. It's uh, it's an interesting conversation. Or the funniest thing that we're going to walk away from for this entire podcasting at the forum experience is the buy more in 24. Because we heard that. I hope yeah. I'm somewhere in a totally other part of this commercial real estate industry and someone goes for buy more in 24. Yeah. And I'll go, yeah, I know where that came from. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny counterpoint to 2025. Because I mean, if you survive if, in 2025, he's like, no, nah, screw that. Buy more yeah. in 24. Well, that's what you end up looking, you know, very smart. I mean, it's obviously. The risk profile is astronomically higher than it is buying when there's nothing but sunshine. But the buyers that consistently do that, wait for the troughs in the market, buy like crazy, always overachieve. But it takes a little stomach to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll find out soon, I think, right? <laughs> and the counterintuitive borrowing when rates are high is less risky than borrowing when rates are low because there's more room to go down than there is up. You know, it's... Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's funny. I'd never actually heard it described that way. That makes perfect sense. I mean, like, when people talk about, you know, future bond yields, you know, there is that, well, if you look at the bandwidth, that's where we are. But I never thought about it from a direct risk profile. Of course, that is a risk. So he's not wrong when you say it out loud like that. To take on more debt. Now's the time to take on more debt. That's yeah. what he's saying. We talked about quite a bit about underwriting construction, how it makes sense, penciling out, penciling out, penciling out. The thing that I always think about with apartment construction right now in the current market is imagine a world where rents have not gone up, but imagine a world where CMHC Select had not launched. Those two things really kept the bulk of the market still on track to keep building apartments through the entire down part of this cycle. But if you're bored and have an Excel spreadsheet in front of you that shows construction pro forma, reduce your LTC by about 12% and cut 20% off your rents and see what those numbers look like and how feasible of a project that is. Those two things have uh, kept, the, kept the market buoyant to say the least. It's scary if you think about the alternatives. And we're not building enough. We hear everybody you talk to, it's just, it's not enough. Supply still needs to be more. There's so much more to do. And and yet we've been so fortunate over the last sort of 24 months that there's just been the, the little building that's, that's occurred. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, I did see an interesting graph not long ago. So the last building boom, yeah, it was 40 years ago or more. And what we're in now feels like a building boom just because when I started my career, which is uh, a little bit after Aaron started his, but I was 12 years ago, and I think you're about 15 years ago now. Yeah. There's very little construction. We spend much time talking about it, just kind of occasional deals coming through. Almost none of them went ahead. So this feels like a building boom. But if you look at the number of units built 40, 50 years ago, McCann's population was two-thirds of what it is now. You know, we were dwarfed by what they were doing 40 or 50 years ago. There is so much more capacity to build into this environment. You know, and in our immigration percentage numbers are up substantially from that point too. So while we are in a building boom, yeah, we're, we're barely scratching the surface. Yeah, well, and he said it. He said, this is what happens when you don't build for 40 years, which is bluntly put, but ultimately the reality. Yeah, you can build a ton and still not even get halfway caught up. So, I mean, I guess good thing for those in the apartment industry presents opportunities other than the, you know, the, the myriad of reasons that, uh, you know, construction is difficult. You will have renters when you get to the end of that project. Buy more in 24. Buy more in 24. We got to make that the the title of the episode. Yeah. Buy more in 24. Catchy. 
All right. Well, that's it for the Ugu Bazari uh, after show. Thanks to everybody for hanging into the, uh, the last drop here. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.